Morning, Browncroft. It's good to be with you again. I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We're going to start at the fifth verse, but before we do that, let me pray. Lord, we come before you today to, first of all, thank you for allowing us to uh, fellowship and worship with you today, to come into your house and to acknowledge who you are. Lord, we ask that you would guide our hearts and guide our thoughts, allow us to hear from you in a way that we've never heard from you before. Lord, allow us to acknowledge who you are and to appreciate how you move in our lives and to appreciate the things that you can do on, for us, Lord. We thank you for being our God, and we ask that you would open our ears, open our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 5, and we'll go, go through verse 13. It says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and I tell this one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. The clout of the miracle maker. The clout of the miracle maker. I begin this morning's message by introducing to you what I call a $5 word, clout, C-L-O-U-T. It means influence, power of effective action, normally in business or politics. In a more common way of speaking, when someone has clout, that means that they have juice. That means that they have power, they, they have influence, they have authority or pull. They have the ability to get things done simply on the basis of their reputation or their authority or influence. The thing about people with clout is that everyone recognizes when you have it. People who have clout don't have to brag about it. They don't have to name drop or tell you who they know. But when they have it, you know it. This morning, I want to talk about the clout of the miracle maker. I'm pretty sure that you've heard of him. The one who turned the water into wine. The one who caused the fishermen's nets to overflow. The one who uh, cast out spirits and even heals mother-in-laws. The one who raises people from the dead. The one who talks to the weather 
and causes the trees to die. You may have heard of the one who's able to cure blindness, to cure deafness. You may have heard about how he's used his clout and his influence for others. But I want to talk to you about how his clout, the clout of the miracle worker, can impact us. Browncroft and friends, in full disclosure, I believe in miracles. I believe that they happen every day. I believe that God is always at work doing something miraculous, something supernatural, something spectacular. But I believe part of the reason that we don't see them or recognize them is either because we've lost our sense of wonder about what God is able to do or that we've never fully understood and accepted that he can do miraculous things. But I would suggest to you that to experience the miraculous, we need increased confidence in the authority of Jesus over our lives. Jesus' interaction with the centurion demonstrates how we can recognize his clout as the miracle maker. In order to see his clout, we must acknowledge the authority of his position, the authority of his prose, and the authority of his person. Jesus' encounter with the centurion uh, tells us, as it is described to us, as he enters Capernaum. Basically, an officer, an army officer, asked Jesus to come to his house. Now, this army officer would normally be disliked by those who were there because he was both in the Roman occupation army and because he was a Gentile. Now, Dr. Luke's version of the story suggests that, the, that this centurion was well thought of and a connection with, G, with Jesus was made through the Jews. Luke's version also describes that when Jesus gets to the house, the centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. The whole exchange is dynamic and instructive because it tells us a few things. It tells us about the faith of the centurion and his understanding of Jesus' position of authority. And it also tells us the kind of faith that Jesus is impressed with and how we should place him in our own lives. Jesus is amazed at the centurion's faith. He says, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Jesus is impressed. Browncroft and friends, I want to ask you, when was the last time that Jesus was impressed with your faith? When was the last time that you turned something over to him that was seemingly impossible? Not something that you prayed about and then picked it up again as if you did not pray, as if you had the power to change it, but something that you knew for sure was beyond your control 
and could only be placed in the authority of someone who had more power, a higher authority. I'm talking about something confounding and confusing, something precarious and precious to you, something that might be stifling or sad. Think about what that could be in your life. Now, let me be a little more specific. I'm talking about something as confounding and confusing as your dating relationship or your current relationship with your husband or with your wife or about your journey after a divorce or a breakup. I'm talking about something as precious and precarious as your career path or where you're going to go to high school, or where you're going to go to college, or the, the major decisions in your life. I'm talking about something stifling, as stifling as an addiction to pornography or alcohol or to illicit drugs, or something as sad as terminal illness, a disabled child, or the death of a loved one. When was the last time you turned something over to him that was so serious and so precarious, so precious, and that you just entrusted it to him? So often in our lives, we go through the motions of praying about an issue and seemingly turning it over to God, only to pick it up again through an act of disbelief. Or we consult our friends or the so-called experts of the day without having consulted God first or without having searched his words first. Let me be clear. I'm not saying ignore your experience or the things, the pain that you've experienced or the things that have happened to you. But the question is, in these situations, is can you behave as if God is in the position of authority on these matters. How do we acknowledge the authority of his position? We impress him with our faith. We entrust to him something or someone that is so precious to us, and we behave as if he ranks higher than any friend or any book or any politician. We must acknowledge the authority of his position. We must also acknowledge the authority of his prose. Even though the centurion feels unworthy to have Jesus come into his home, he recognizes something that we should also recognize. He recognizes the authority of Jesus' words. They are effective for the purpose for which they were spoken. And the speaker assumes completion. I'll break that down for you in a minute. But from his perspective as an officer, the centurion understands the authority that comes with his own commands. He says, as the commander, when I say go, the soldiers go. When I say come, the soldier comes. When the commander says move, the soldier does it. 
His commands are simple, direct, and effective. Now the centurion is seeing Jesus in the commanding role. And he sees Jesus' words as simple, direct, and effective. He sees that there is authority in Jesus' prose. Browncroft and friends, we must acknowledge that, when, that there is authority in Jesus' words. His commands are neither complicated nor complex, but they are totally effective for the purpose for which they were spoken, and they assume completion. What do I mean by that? I mean that whenever God speaks, his word will be accomplished for the purpose for which they were expressed. The Bible says that his words won't return unto him void. His commands are simple, direct, and effective. So whether he's speaking to the elements of wind and rain and says, peace be still, or whether he's telling his servants to fill the jars of water to make wine, or whether he's telling Peter to let down the nets for a catch, or telling the spirits to come out of him or go into a herd of pigs, or whether he's telling the paralytic to get up, take your mat, and walk, or telling the disciples to go and you feed them, or telling the blind man to go wash in the pool, or telling the lepers to rise and go, or even telling a dead man named Lazarus to come out, his commands will accomplish the purpose for which they were expressed. There's no double talk with these commands. The person or the entity to whom these words were spoken wouldn't need a lexicon or a thesaurus. There's no subliminal messages that need to be interpreted or perceived. His commands are simple, direct, and effective, and they assume completion. So what does that mean for us? This means that when God gives us a command to love one another or to not worry about tomorrow or to let our light shine or to ask, seek, and knock or to keep his commandments or to follow him or to make disciples of all the nations, He's not relying on my ability or my authority or my intellect to get these things done. He doesn't need any of that from me. He's able to make these connections and make this stuff happen all by himself. But he does assume completion. What he's looking for from us is obedience, just like the servants, just like the evil spirits, just like the disciples, just like Peter, just like the paralytic, just like the blind man, and just like the dead man. When he spoke, they obeyed. He's got the miracles in his back pocket. Miracles are nothing to him. All he has to do is speak and it will happen. That's child's play. But what God is looking for from us is obedience in the form of belief and action. 
I want to tell you about a couple miracles that happened to me. I have had a whole bunch of them happen, but I just want to tell you about two of them. The first one is how I got the job at the University of Houston. Basically, I was sitting at my desk at the University of Illinois as a TA, and they told me that your fellowship has run out, and next year, we're not going to be able to pay you. So that meant that in my last year of school, I would be unable to pay for school. I would be unable to pay for the two houses that I was responsible for. I'd be unable to provide for my family. And my wife just quit her job. I was sitting in the office, and I just started praying. I put my head in my hands, and I just started praying. I said, Lord, I don't know what to do here. And it was almost as if he spoke in my ear, and he said, I told you I would give you the desires of your heart. Now, for those who don't know, the reference is Psalm 37.4, which says, Delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I prayed, and I said, Lord, I want to go to Houston or to Charlotte. And uh, then I started putting my resume together. So I put my resume together, and uh, I sent it to the University of Houston. And first of all, I didn't know anybody there. I didn't know the department chair, and they did not have a job. I sent the, the resume forward, and I called the, the department chair up, and I said, hey, I just sent you my CV. She said, oh, okay. I said, well, um, she said, well, we don't have any positions open. I said, yeah, I know, but just, just check and just look at my CV. And so as she was looking over the CV, I can hear her saying, hmm, hmm, hmm. And I'm like, Lord, you know, you're going to make this happen, aren't you? <laughs> and she, by the end of our conversation, she said, I think we've got something for you. This was out of nothing. I didn't know the lady. There was no job description. That's the first miracle. Another miracle that happened to me was when I, I actually had a friend of mine who I led to the Lord. And uh, we were going to put my house back together in New Orleans after the hurricane. And we had rented a truck and put some stuff on the truck. And we were headed down I-57 at about 930 at night. And I was just talking to him about the goodness of the Lord. And I was just bragging on how God has good has, he's been to me and all this kind of stuff. And I feel something wobbling in the truck. And the truck had two, I don't know if you've seen these, these trucks that have two wheels at the back, two wheels on this side and two wheels on this side. Well, I pull over, and the, the truck has a flat on the inside wheel. There's no way that I can fix this. So we get back in the truck, and I said, man, let's just pray. We started praying. I started the truck up. And we started going, I said, maybe we can just wobble to the next exit. While we're wobbling to the next exit, my friend looks up and he says, man, look at the sign. 24-hour truck repair. <laughs> I had to praise right then because we were just talking about how good God is. And it wasn't just for me, it was for him. And I need to make another point here. When you've had a miracle in your life, it's helpful when you tell somebody about it. 
They might not believe it. They might not believe it, was, it came from God. But it's helpful to tell them that God's still in the miracle business. So my point is this. Whether God is making something out of nothing or whether he is showing you something that was already there that you need to pay attention to, he's got his part covered. He's got the miracle covered. The question is, are we ready to believe and act? How do we acknowledge the authority of his prose? We believe and we act on what he's commanded. We must acknowledge the authority of his position, acknowledge the authority of his prose, and we must also acknowledge the authority of his person. What do I mean by acknowledging the authority of his person? I mean that we must recognize that when Jesus did miracles and when he does miracles now, he does it out of the entirety of his person. I mean out of his divine nature and out of his human nature. Jesus does the miraculous things with people in mind. Out of his divine nature, he exercised power over death and sickness. Out of human nature, he acted with compassion towards those that he loved. I'm not sure if you noticed in this passage, but during this whole exchange with the centurion, a little bit of Jesus' humanity and a little bit of his divinity leaked out. His humanity leaked out when he was amazed at the officer's faith. He was amazed at his faith, and yet he's God. His divinity leaks out when he mentions that some will be found unworthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. Out of his humanity, he sees the needs of the officer and the servant. And out of his divinity, he heals the servant. Out of his humanity, he tries to understand and meet the needs of people. But out of his divinity, he also knows that not everyone is going to see and believe and trust what they see and what they hear. In fact, even those who are supposed to know him the most will misinterpret his message and his miracles. Browncroft and friends, out of both humanity and divinity, Jesus completed one of the greatest miracles ever performed. It was initiated at the cross of Calvary, and it was completed when he rose from the grave. And in the eyes of some, this gave the maker of miracles a lot of clout. And I'm glad to say that I'm one of those people. You need to know that this miracle is still in force today as he sits at the right hand of God exercising the power of his position and the authority of his prose and the authority of his person. As I close, I must say that I'm always fascinated by followers and athletes and soldiers who say that they would follow their leader to the gates 
of hell. For some reason, they have placed their trust in the authority of this person's command. They boldly declare without equivocation that they're willing to follow this leader to the most wretched place that has ever been created. I'm fascinated at their willingness to trust the words of human beings by who, who by very nature are incapable of being right all of the time. Their words may be profound by human standards, but they are temporal and earthly at best. I'm fascinated by their willingness to trust a person's character or their, because of their image or their reputation or because of their charisma or what they perceive about this person's leadership. Somehow they can trust this person based on their perception of those things and still find it difficult to believe that God is doing miracles or that God is real. But for me, I would prefer to follow the person or the one who has already been to the gates of hell and earned the victory once and for all. That deserves a greater amen. I prefer the words of one whose words are eternal and life-changing. His words live and breathe and move as I live, breathe, and move. I prefer to trust the one who understands what it is to be human, but yet exercise divinity and authority over all things, whether it's sickness or death, whether it's prosperity or poverty, or whether it's circumstances or outcomes. I prefer to follow Jesus. Today, I want you to ask yourself where you stand. Will you acknowledge the authority of his position? Will you acknowledge the authority of his prose? Will you acknowledge the authority of his person? Or will you misinterpret the message or the miracles? Let's stand. Dear Lord, as we come before you today, I am sure that there are those of us who are here today who are holding on and trying to hold on to something that's precious or stifling or sad or confounding or confusing because we think that we, if we just work hard enough that it could be worked through. But Father, I'm inviting that person, I'm asking you to step in and to let that person know that you would like to take on that challenge, that you have the authority to do it. Let it be in our own hearts and in our own minds that we're willing to turn over the things that's most precious to us, to you, to entrust them to you, because you know more about the situation and you know more about ourselves than we do, and because you have the power to change it. Lord, I ask that for this week, help us to look for the things that you're doing in our lives and to appreciate the miraculous, to appreciate the supernatural. We thank you for being our God. 
We ask, God, that you would walk with us and that you would be with us and keep us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. God bless you.